Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be discussing Guy Ritchie returning to his roots in The Gentleman, as well as the new horror movie The Turning, plus a Netflix and chat about The Two Popes, The Irishman, and Winnie the Pooh from 2011. I'll explain how that came up. Uh, but yeah, let's get started. There's only one rule in this jungle. When the lion's hungry, he eats. associates had an accident. So you killed someone? No, it was the gravity that killed him. Do we need those phones? So I never actually watched Guy Ritchie's first two movies. I think they were his first two, but Snatch and Lock, Sock and Two Smoking Barrels, the ones that he's most famous for. And I just knew that he was famous for those two, and that was kind of his niche was these crime uh, sort of movies where it's like where it's all about the criminal underbelly of uh, London specifically, and seeing this felt like a return to him doing what he was best known for. And I think my thing is because I never was really into those uh, first two movies of his that him going back to it doesn't do a whole lot for me. Um, I mean, it's better than his Aladdin, but um, that's you know goes without saying. But yeah, this this new movie from him, it's clever, but it's also trying to be too clever. I think my problem is that the framing device is Hugh Grant is a um, private investigator, and he's uh, telling the story, telling the event of of the leading up to the present to um, Charlie Hunnam, who is the enfor- this enforcer for Matthew McConaughey's uh, marijuana kingpin character. And so Hugh Grant's just going off on this whole storyline in, in an effort to um, blackmail uh, Matthew McConaughey's character. And so the, like, the first two acts are mainly about recapping what, what has happened and then the third act is, is is all taking place in the present. And I think the problem is that that framing device, the whole story within a story sort of thing, it it you have to do it in a certain way for it to really work for me. Like Princess Bride makes perfect sense because it's a grandfather reading the story to his grandson. Here why did it need to be this whole elaborate, you know, narr- narr- n- you know, narration by Hugh Grant to Charlie Hunnam instead of just like what what does making it a story within a story add to the narrative? Why is it there it, other than for um Guy Ritchie to get be all clever uh and and think he's the smartest guy in the room? Like uh, I get the feeling that writing this script, Guy Ritchie thinks he's Hugh Grant, and yeah, it's it really is kind of up its own ass in in that sense. But that's just you know part my little nitpicks with the reason why I didn't stick with me. That and there's these weird like subtleties of like. Guy Ritchie thinking, oh, well, if everybody's racist to each other, it's not all that racist. Kind of like that Gran Torino mindset of, like, we can be racist to each other because it's, like, because we're cool with that. And it's a it, 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 little thing, you know, think, especially 
uh, in terms of like treating, talking about Henry Golding's character and the and the and the various um, Asian uh, gangsters in the movie. And there's a there's a really really um, weird like uh, reference to Shylock at one point um, uh, from Merchant of Venice, and I explained that to my nephew who didn't understand the reference. And he didn't think it was much of an issue because he figured that was the character being racist. But I had to remind him that the character was created by Guy Ritchie. So even if Guy, you know, the fact that Guy Ritchie was willing to make that kind of racist statement for his character, said, you know, says that he's he's okay with it. And it's just like, once again, it didn't need to be there essentially. It's just Guy Ritchie thinking he's, you know, the smartest guy in the room, thinking he's so clever. And... Yeah, it's it, it 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 just didn't sit well with me. Um, I f- it, it didn't feel I didn't feel like it was necessary enough in the movie to be there. Like be it being there didn't add to the movie. It just kind of uh, detracted from it. That said, this movie is still good. Um, you know, it's still amazing performances from everybody. Uh, McConaughey as this kingpin character who's a mix of laid back and intense, depending on the scene, is great. Um, Charlie Hunnam is solid. Uh, I'm trying to think who all uh, Henry Golding. My God, I love the I love I love seeing him in more stuff. He is fantastic. The more stuff with him, the better. But yeah, it, it but it ultimately just comes down to if you're into Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels and uh, Snatch, this will be great for you. But personally, it it kind of feels dated. It does feel a bit like he's trying to tap into a movie, you know, a style of filmmaking that hasn't been around since for twenty years, and that. It does. It ultimately is a throw. It's kind of a throwback, but it's also like really a really dated throwback. It's not, um, re- you know, it's like this weird kind of, um, area of like retroness that doesn't it doesn't necessarily work perfectly, but um. And, you know, there's, like, once again, little bits and pieces throughout the movie that didn't need to be there that feel like Guy Ritchie trying to be either edgy or um, clever. And ultimately, it's just kind of okay. Like, I don't see feel the need to go back to this movie, but I didn't hate watching it either. So, yeah, just go be bear in mind, this is Guy Ritchie going back to that sort of lock, stock, and two smoking barrels sort of mindset so if you're into that cool uh go go check this out otherwise you you know you don't have to rush out to see it i you don't have to rush out to see this in the theaters if you don't necess- if this isn't necessarily your thing so yeah it's not something you need to see it's just it's just you know it's better than um uh some of his other stuff but it's it it's not something that like really hooked me in either bad dreams boy this one uh well uh this one is interesting um it's it's from the director of the runaways movie uh that's basically the best thing she's 
known for. Uh, she mostly does music videos, um, as well as the husband and wife writing team behind The Conjuring, who I learned actually got 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 an early start on Baywatch Nights. <laughs> uh, uh, thank uh, Allison Bregler over at uh, Movie Nights for uh, revealing that tri- bit of trivia to me. But um, this is based on the novel *The Turning of the Screw* by Henry James. It's a it's an old like Victorian era ghost story, and it's this movie. It's set up in the '90s, but they set it up by showing news footage of Kurt Co- announcing Kurt Cobain's death. It it's a weird way to kind of set up the time period, as well as. Not necessary. Like the only reason it's there is is tangentially a a, a connect a, a possible connection between um, uh, the governess character in the movie Kate and um, Finn Wolfhard's uh, character, who is also in the music. And so, like, there's a possibility that Kurt Cobain's death could be like a um, like a connecting point between the two. And like, that's the thing. This movie. I just I had to watch a video trying to explain the ending to me because I won't give I I'll do a spoiler in case anybody actually wants to see it. Like my nephew has hated the ending so much he's willing to spoil and ruin this movie for any and everybody. He this movie pissed him off to no end, and I uh, I had to let him know that this is from the people who tried to make the crooked man of a monster. In another movie, these pe- <laughs> this husband and wife writing team are not good. <laughs> yeah. Um, suffice to say that yeah, it's this movie has good setup. It has an interesting setup to it. You know, there's a mom suffering from some kind of dementia or some you know some kind of mental breakdown. There, there's this woman who is much more working class coming into this very high end like upper class setting so there's this subtle classism between the uh housekeeper and her there's um there's the kids who you can't you're not really sure if they're just creepy or if there's something else going on with them and once again this is all really solid um setup but then it does it 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 tries to have it both ways because in the because the basic premise of the book is a governess goes to help take care of this little girl. Uh, the brother comes back um, from boarding school, and while they're while they're there, these ghosts these ghosts start haunting them, and the governess has to try and um, unravel the mystery of it all and protect the kids from what's been going on. And the not to mention the fact that. Uh, other interpretation, like most people take it at face value, um, and Henry James specifically intended it as an actual haunting that the ghosts are there. But a lot of people are starting to uh, have kind of interpreted it as is the governess losing her sanity? Is working in this, um, you know, upper class um, manner by the, you know, she's starting to get like that cabin fever sort of thing and this movie tries to have it both ways where it's about you know dealing with somebody who may be starting to suffer some mental issues herself is she suffering from you know some kind of mental breakdown or is she or are there actually ghosts and it's like 
they set it up that there are actually ghosts in the movie. There are actual bits that, outside of her perspective, there are very clearly ghosts in this movie. And then they try to pull the, oh, but it maybe it was just all in her head. Ooh. And it's like, mm, you can't try to have it both ways. Like, either it was, either have it in the, have it in mind that it was all in her head, or have it in mind that the ghosts are there. You can't try to have it both ways. But yeah, it's for the first two acts and up till about the ending, it it's a fairly solid horror movie. My biggest issue with it is that it, a lot of the scares are dreams. So it's Mackenzie Davis like having this scary thing happen and then oh, it was just a dream and it's like that's the laziest kind of jump scare it's right up there with like oh it was just the cat you know like oh it was it was oh it's just a kitty you know like jump scares are just going to be a part of horror and people say like oh god i can't stand jump scares but like that's the thing the one of the most iconic horror sequences is a jump scare i'm referring to uh psycho the uh the the first killing scene in psycho the shower scene um granted you see her but the the scare comes like all you do is see her like you don't imagine she's going to actually kill um whatever the character's name is uh in the shower you think that oh she's just going to like uh, you don't know what she's going to do and then like boom jump you know like the ding 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 like that's a that's a, you know it's a jump it's a it's a you know it's it's not um jump scare out of no and then that's kind of the basis for so many other jump scares is the quiet tension leading to release. That's all it is. It's tension and release. And the problem is that the psycho one is built up. You see her coming and the character doesn't so it's like what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? Boom! Then it happens. So the thing, the problem is that horror movies think that they can just do a cheaper version of tension and release, and they've been getting away with it forever because nobody really stops them, and they people still go pay their money to see it, and they're so cheap to make that it doesn't matter. But I think the idea that oh, the the scary thing happened, but it was all a dream. It's so lazy. It's a lazy way to try and get scares in. And even though they're trying to p play up the, oh, she's slowly losing her mind, it, it doesn't help, you know? It doesn't, it doesn't make them not be a lazy dream scare. And, yeah, the the stuff with Finn Wolfhard and um, Brooklyn, I forget her last name, but uh, the girl in this, um, who was actually the little sister in uh, Lego Movie 2, I came to find out. So yeah, she's the I see good things for this kid. She is she's proven that she can do like, you know, cutesy family stuff, but she can also be like that weird bit of creepy cute. Like she could easily play like a Wednesday Adams if uh if she wanted, you know, if they did that live action again. She is solid for you know, she's proven through this that she can easily pull off Wednesday. And yeah, I I'm very interested to see how she follows this up plus Finn well, I've come to know mainly through game groups uh, as a guest. Um, I never actually watched Stranger Things yet. I still need to get on that. Um, but I've seen him kind of, you know, through the It movies and through his various, uh, his you know, as he's starting to kind of get into more uh, major films, he has proven himself to be a very capable actor. And here he is 
playing both the snotty little brother as well as somebody maybe he's up maybe something's going on like is he is he you know like is is the something more sinister going on so like he's able to do very creepy and very um you know snotty bratty as well like you're not quite yeah he does he does a great job in this but i think what it ultimately comes down to is that kate's a terrible nanny i think that's one of i was telling my nephew this like she like a bunch of the times the problem is Kate's terrible at her job. <laughs> like, it, like there's a bit where, um, a, a koi dies in their pond and she decides, Oh, let's go into town and get a new koi. And she's like, let's bring the girl with us. And then as they're about to leave the property, she starts freaking out about leaving because she watched her parents die at the property gates. And so when she goes near those gates, she starts freaking out because she's suffering trauma. And Kate's just like, oh, no, nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. We're going to keep going instead of literally just stopping the car and like, OK, we can take you back and I'll get I'll get the koi and I'll bring it back to you. Like literally like she's she has no idea how to handle somebody dealing with trauma. And it's like what? I, I get she's in over her head, but there's a point where you're dealing with children where you know to stop when the child is freaking out so you can calm them down. You don't keep going and tell the child to shut up. That's something you do when when you're like on a mission or something. Like you have to do something adult related. Here she was doing this for the girl. And it's like the girl doesn't want to go, so you stop the car. And Finn's rightfully pissed at her because she didn't just stop the damn car. <laughs> like, what do you do? Like, come on. How, do you not know how to do your job? <laughs> you have one job. Uh, yeah, it's... But yeah, and like, they try to make Miles out to be super menacing and creepy. And like, yeah, he's creepy, but in the same way that a lot of Ten, a, lot, a lot of like teenage boys who don't have a lot of, who don't have a lot of interaction with girls and who are dealing with a lot of privilege um, are creepy. Like he's creepy in the way that just basically teenage boys have a tendency to be creepy. But they try to make him out to be menacing. It's much more like no, he sees right. Th- he sees that this na- this is that this, that this woman is not doing not doesn't know how to do her job. So. Yeah, she's trying to be nice and all, but she's also an idiot. <laughs> like, I, like it would be one thing if she was really doing her best and was being, like, outcast. But no, this, like, at, at so many points, Kate's just an idiot. Kate's just an idiot who has no idea how to take care of children, despite the fact that she's supposedly a teacher. Like, uh Yeah, it's, it's all so frustrating. And the ghost stuff is has cool visuals, but it's not very it's it's all over the place in terms of whether it's scary or not. It's cool looking like the bits with there's a bit in the trailer with the hands crawling all over her. But what does that have to do with anything like it's 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 like all style without a lot of substance. But um, yeah, so suffice to say that the, the turning did make me want to go back and read the book because I'm because it's a lot because I I get the feeling that the book's even better, but it's not like it, it for the most part it was a fine movie and then the ending ruined it. The ending made it absolutely terrible. So 
Um, uh, yeah, so, so just bear that in mind. You can probably just wait for this one uh, to come on video if you want to check it out. I wouldn't recommend going to see it in theaters. And so with that in mind, uh, we're going to do a quick spoiler warning um, in case you do want to know about the ending. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Alright, so, uh, at the, the first ending, because there's two, technically two endings in this movie, um, the first, the main ending comes from, uh, the book, which is, uh, basically in the book, um, the governess, uh, realizes that the previous governess was, um, uh, I think they, uh, talk about, I know, for one thing, uh, the trigger warning, um, uh, for those going to see this, um, and about, for, about the ending, there is a rape scene, and there's reference to the previous governess being, um, pursued by and then assaulted by the, uh, uh, land, uh, the, the land ca- caretaker. He basically was... Uh, the person who inherited the estate from the parents after they died. Um, and he was like this abusive alcoholic. And he, uh, they, they, they imply that he abused uh, Miles at one point, Finn's character. And yeah, he's played up to be the main villain of the movie. Uh, his ghost uh, is doing a lot of the um, more sinister haunting stuff. Whereas the previous governess is the one kind of educating Kate throughout this movie. And the climax, ha- the main climax has to do with them trying to escape from Quint. Um, and him kind of be- turning into more of like a poltergeist. And it's, that ending is fine. That ending, it kind of mirrors what happens in the book without being the exact same. And it's a great ending. Then, as they leave, after they escape the property, it's a perfectly fine ending. It pulls back because basically uh, there's a point where just before the climax, where Kate's mom, who is suffering from some kind of un for undescribed, you know, undiagnosed or unspoken mental breakdown, mental illness of some kind, dementia, schizophrenia, any number of things. Uh, it's just, oh, this woman's mentally unsound. And she has sent uh, Kate these black um, art pieces that are just basically all black pages with some bits torn out to make symbols. Um, like holes punched in in the various points to show like some kind of symbols there. And it pulls back from the pre- from the first ending into Kate looking into one of her mom's works to then reveal that Kate has been losing her mind and is seeing things that aren't there. So they tried to, and then, and then the final shot of the movie is Kate in a dream state, some kind of weird ass dream state. Um, uh, it basically, um, cause the movie started, uh, before she left for the estate uh, she goes to visit her mom in the mental hospital, and her mom is in an empty pool doing her artwork. And so the end of the movie is her in this weird dream state version of the pool, 
of the empty pool, going up to her mother, who looks her in the face. We don't see what the mom looks like. Um, but Kate looks at her when her mom turns to her. Kate screams, and then the credits. And like I tried to watch a, somebody break down that oh this is about how Kate is actually losing her mind and going crazy and this is all emblematic of that idea and it's like you you spent the whole movie specifically telling us that there are ghosts you can't just now try to pull an M night on us and say oh no Kate was actually insane the whole time no you, you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. You don't get to try to pull out the rug out from under us and act like, oh, th that's this is what's been going on the whole time when your movie has not been been that way the whole time. Like, yes, you could easily... If you intended this to be Kate was losing her mind the whole time and has been suffering some kind of mental breakdown, then yes, have that in mind when you write the movie so that you can explain that Kate, all the Kate's sightings of the ghosts and the events that are occurring are Kate losing her mind. You don't get to, after a very clearly establishing a point, that there are ghosts here that, oh, now she's crazy. Now it's just that she was crazy the whole time. You don't, you don't get to have your cake and eat it, too. You, <laughs> oh, God, it's... It's so frustrating, and yeah, I'm uh, my nephew really hated this ending. Like this ending ruined the movie for him. He was pissed coming out of this. He is, and he I can imagine he is still genuinely pissed. And it's been like four days. Like this is gonna be one of those endings that sticks with him. That it just absolutely ruined it for him because you had a good ending ending like similar to the book and then you try to pull the rug out from under us and he saw right through it he saw that it was so stupid and good for him because he saw exactly what i saw that it's a it's a it's a cheap ass way to try and give your ending more depth than it had you can't just now all of a sudden say oh she's actually crazy instead of the, and, and say that's the ending, and then the the final shot is the is the is the, is the real straw that breaks the camel's back, it, just because it has no reason to be there. Like what what does that even mean? What does that even have to do with anything? Like it's one thing to make some kind of artistic statement, but there has to be. But if, if you're trying to do that, if you're trying to pull that now, like why? What what what, what does that have to do with anything? It's just. Yeah, the ending of this ruins the entire movie for the most part. Like, it was a perfectly serviceable horror movie up until the ending where it became utter garbage. So, yeah. I I personally think you should skip it. Apparently, there are other adaptations of this book. Uh, I would check those out. But this? Nah. Nah, you're good, fam. You can move on. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. Alright, I got two more of the Oscar nominees out of the way uh, this this past week. Uh, the first one was The Two Popes, uh, which have been nominated for Adapted Screenplay, I believe Adapted Screenplay, and then... Uh, actor, lead and supporting actors for uh, Anthony Hopkins and um, um, uh, Jonathan Price, uh, who I know, who did I know him from? Uh, he was, 
Hold on. I, there was a role he played that I recognized him from immediately, and I, now I can't remember. Come on. Here we are. Uh, apparently he was on Game of Thrones. Um, oh, he was uh, Elliot Carver. He was the villain in Tomorrow Never Dies. And I completely didn't recognize him uh, in this. He is, un he is he, through makeup and, what, and his performance, he is much more... Um, he is much more... Uh, he looks and feels a lot more... Like um, Pope Francis, um, he's also apparently somebody in the Man Who Invented Christmas. Um, but he's on Game of Thrones as High Sparrow. Uh, for that, that might be where most people know him from. Um, but yeah, uh, him in this movie, he's great. They're both great. They're both. Um, I won't. I don't know that I would nominate them both for this, but it was to like. But once again, uh. For a good breakdown of like why the Oscars are bullshit, uh, I recommend Renegade Cuts' uh, recent video on it. Um, Leon did a great breakdown of like how basically the Oscars are equivalent to political campaigns. That's all it is. Like it's not a, it's not a meritocracy. It is literally just movie studios campaigning for their stuff to be nominated and then having to pretend that it's not that. It is such a tra it's such transparent. Not I think I, they mentioned this in uh, the Christopher Guest movie for your consideration as well, uh, which I also recommend. It's not one that gets a lot of play, like um, Best in Show or A Mighty Wind, but for your consideration is like a great sort of uh, a mocking of trying to make an Oscar bait movie. It's it's a really solid movie, um, but yeah. Anyway, the Two Popes is a mostly fictionalized uh, sort of interaction between uh, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis, just between the transition of when Benedict stepped down and Francis took up the, took up the role. Um, it's a lot, mainly, a, it's, a, it's a mainly fictional one because there's no real evidence that they ever had these kind of long-form discussions about the transitional period. I think it was just a way for them to have like long form, like a way for these two popes to have long form discussions on dogma and the, and the positions of the church and uh, what they should do going forward. I don't know what their relationship was like um, behind the scenes, but yeah, this is mostly, by most accounts, this is none of this, none of the real like long form conversations that happened in this movie ever happened. And, um, I will say this though the the fact that they're mostly you know that they do tend to speak English later in the movie but they for the most part they're like speaking Latin and Price is speaking Spanish uh and so they are trying to not make it wholly in English which is a nice touch but yeah it's it's a it's a it's trying to humanize these the you know these two characters well these two people and I think the issue is that they're trying to humanize people who, genuinely speaking, are not, like, the best. Like, Benedict, I don't know much about Benedict, but he was a very hardline conservative pope, I remember. And, like, even though they try to play Francis as the cool pope, 
he is there's another video by renegade cut to check out the um, also uh some more news did a breakdown of uh francis as the quote cool pope and yeah francis is much more much um much more uh progressive than benedict but he's also not like wholly pro- he's progressive by comparison because he's still fairly like center right when you break down his real his real stuff he's just much more willing to be accepting of certain aspect you know certain progressive aspects but he's not progressive he is he himself is not as that progressive when you compare him to actual progressive people he's just progressive by comparison to the rest of the catholic church and people f- tend to forget that that he's still adhering to a lot of the unnecessary and fairly toxic dogma of the church. Um, but at the same point, like, yeah, it's, it's a basic, this is basically a backdoor to a France, Pope Francis biopic. Cause it's much more about his upbringing in Argentina and how he became a priest there in his time there. That's that, like, that, that's the other thing too, is that given that we're dealing with two popes who are still in the, in the midst of the, um, of the abuse scandals going on in the church. Like the church is not, it's not this, you know, great, you know, they try to play the church, you know, the popes off as like, Oh, how do we handle this? And it's like, no, these guys are both complicit in all of this. And it's just, and not to mention the fact that apparently Pope Francis was, uh, was in charge of the very, of, of some diocese or something like that, or of the Jesuits, in Argentina during um, a military, uh, I think junta, uh, whatever it was, the um, it was basically um, the the this very dark part in Argentinian history where um, it was a very where like the military was in charge and it was it was a military dictatorship and. Uh, backed by the U.S., I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and Pope Francis at the time, uh, just a, just like a, I think a, I don't know if he was a cardinal or uh, just a, or a bishop, but bas- but he was in charge of the Jesuits in Argentina, and he and he also oversaw the ones that got you know taken by the st- by the state and executed. And they try to play it off as like he was a willing, yeah, he wasn't a willing participant. It's just he was doing the best to try and you know make the best of a bad situation. And it's like if you look into it, it's not as clear, not that clear. They're trying to play it off as like the best case scenario, but there's you know people, there are people who claim that uh, you know at the time, Fran, uh, Pope Francis, uh, Pope Francis was much more complicit than he would like to admit. And I think that this, this trying to this tries to like hand wash his involvement in that. Uh, so yeah, it's. But yeah, once again, that's my whole bit with uh, accuracy. I am very keen on if you're trying to present the fact, if you're trying to present two actual people, you should present them as accurately as possible, and you shouldn't like try to wash over any bad stuff just so you can focus on tr- try to make them look better. But yeah. Um, so let's say that this isn't a bad movie. It's a it's it's an interesting sort of uh, discussion piece on like you know religious dogma and the and the church and it's like these two these two great actors able to bounce back off each other. It's like a it's like a it's almost like a play 
like well, a two like a two man play that uh, was adapted to film and yeah, there's a bit at the end that's a ran- this just a random dig at Trump, uh, which came out came right the hell out of nowhere. Um, basically about the border wall and it felt like yeah once again that felt like it came right the hell out of nowhere like what like yeah that, that i mean that's a fine reference and all but what did that have to do with the rest of the movie it's just like oh by the way yeah trump's a dick you know all of a sudden at the very end of this movie and it's like cool uh yeah yeah cool sure right then okay <laughs> but yeah um it yeah it, it acknowledges that the issues exist but it never but it kind of glosses them over uh, specifically with uh Francis uh, Francis's time in Argentina it yeah, it's ultimately just a way it's just an excuse to get these two actors to get you know get you know to get awards nominees because nominations because it's all, it ultimately doesn't come down to anything it's it, it's just like a mostly fictionalized um interaction between the two popes and it's it's you know it's fine enough it's what it's not it's not poorly done but it doesn't really you're not really missing out on anything either like i'm not saying you should go and rush out to watch this on netflix it's just kind of okay personally but um yeah it's it's better than the other one I watched on Netflix, which is The Irishman, a three and a half hour waste of my goddamn time. And people, I'm seeing people rate this as like five star, a five star movie. And I'm like, cool, I guess. But like, all I got out of this is that, oh yeah, Martin Scorsese made way better movies back in the day. I should go watch those. Uh, like the, Martin Scorsese was making it a big deal about the death of Hollywood and how he had to resort. Like he's actually talked about resorting to Netflix as though like it's beneath him. Like, oh, how dare I use this award-winning streaming service to make and release my movie? How how far have I fallen? No, no, no. How far is the how how you know how the system has failed me? A legacy director who can still actually get movies made. Period. Like, he's not wrong that corporate Hollywood has ruined the industry. But at the same point, like, you made a three and a half hour slog. Like, this movie, like, this movie could lose a full hour and be just fine. There was no reason for this to be three and a half hours. Like, and they try to make a big deal of like, oh, we used de-aging software to make it to, you know, we used deep fakes to try and make Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci and Al Pacino look younger than they actually are. Oh, cool. Why? Why not just use actors, younger actors to play those parts? Why did it have to be the old guys have made to look younger other than to show off that you can do that? It's like, it reminds me that the whenever they try to show off the de aging stuff, it really reminds me of that movie, The Congress, which I still need to see. Uh, the Congress was a movie; it was a very independent, like almost un you know, very almost underground sort of movie starring Robin Wright as herself in this fictionalized alternate timeline where uh, Hollywood is are is it bought where like the some studio bought the rights to her appearance in order to put digitally put her in movies. So Robin, like this fictionalized Robin Wright, sells the rights to her 
uh, appearance to to a studio who then puts digitally puts her in movies, and it's like, yeah, that was a we- like a crazy thing. Like, oh wow, that's crazy that you know the, that they would do that. There's no way that you know you think that's not going to happen. Then all of a sudden they're doing this de aging stuff. They're talking about making new movies with James Dean, and it's like, oh Jesus, they are doing this. This is this is life imitating art again it's like of all the things to take from sci-fi they took that one of course they did uh but yeah it's like completely overloaded with unnecessary tangents it feel you know what it feels like i mentioned this in my letterboxd review it feels like abe simpson telling telling a like did i ever tell you about the time i met i worked with jimmy hoffa and it's, it just goes off on these weird tangents that go nowhere, and it, it, it's, it's like it is like a, a, your old, your senile grandpa trying to tell you about all this stuff happening, and it's like you, you didn't have. And then it just goes off on weird tangents about now. Now you see, he, his our wives like to smoke, but he, but you know, Joe Pesci, he did not like people. He did not like smoking his car, so we would have to always take stops along the way for cigarette breaks on our way to Detroit. And it's like, what did that have to do with anything? What did that, Grandpa, Grandpa Martin? What did that have to do with anything? God, it. it I'm sorry. I, I just. I think the problem was this was also like this greatly before even before the oscars people were talking about how oh martin scorsese's latest movie is this great as is, is, is another great one from him and how oh and it feels like it feels like people are giving martin scorsese the credit from for being a good it, it's a legacy credit it, it it's not that this movie is great it's that goodfellas was great casino was great even wolf of wall street was great but i'm getting to the point where Morton Scorsese needs is like Peter Jackson, where it's like, dude, get an editor, cut this down. You're you you're you're up your own ass with like I need to have unrated versions of all my things. It's everything I did must make it to the screen. All every for every single frame is a painting, and it must be shown to the public. The the people must see this, and it's like God. Damn, my dude, you made a story about Jimmy Hoffa boring. Jimmy Hoffa, one of probably the most iconic cases of like, what the hell happened? And, you know, mob connections. Martin Scorsese in a mob movie about Jimmy Hoffa made it boring. He made it boring. God damn. Oh, just, ugh. And yeah, the, I feel like the only reason this is getting any push for the Oscars is because it's all legacy stuff. Legacy, Martin Scorsese is a legacy winner. Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Al Pacino are all legacy actors that, they, that, the, that the old men at the Academy certainly do love. This played great at the nursing home that is the Ac- motion, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Ugh. Sorry, just... I have... I mean, the, the the Oscars are themselves uh, a kind of a, a sham. <laughs> and it's debatable whether they ever were a meritocracy to begin with. But, yeah, I think the problem is that this movie was already like, oh, this you know, people praising this movie over and over again. It's like, 
sure, the actors are fine, but, like, it's Robert De Niro kind of going through the motions. And Joe, even Joe Pesci is, like, doing a, is doing a good job for the most part. But he's also kind of forgettable. Like, I would much rather watch Joe Pesci in Goodfellas because he's a lot more memorable there than he is in this movie. Everything is so subtle and downplayed and just, like, low-key that... Like, even the... Like, even when it gets, like, super violent and crazy, it's still, like, it's not exciting. It's just not exciting. It's just, it feels like a reminder that uh, Martin Scorsese used to make good movies. And maybe it's, you know, he got, and even when he's trying to tackle something as iconic as Jimmy Hoffa, he, he still, he, he just doesn't gotten anymore. So, like... Gee, I wonder why no other studio wanted to make a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour monstrosity, Martin. Hey, Marty. Gee, I wonder why the studios weren't into a three-and-a-half-hour slog. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it's kind of reminding me of how, like, um, like there's a there are issues there. Martin Scorsese brings up some issues, but it reminds me a bit of when George Lucas was talking about... Uh, how he couldn't get Red Tails made because of racism in Hollywood. He's not wrong, but the movie he ended up making was also not very good. So, like, all of your arguments for, like, all the, all the problems with the system, they don't amount to anything when the thing that you made in spite of it is not good. Like, the thing you made is still not good. Just because you're right about the, the problems within the system doesn't mean that your thing is good. The thing you made, arguably, they were right. They were arguably right because, hey, Red Tails was not a good movie and neither is The Irishman. Gee, I wonder why a studio didn't want Martin Scorsese's rambling on for three and a half hours about Jimmy Hoffa on the, on the big screen. Uh. Uh, so, yeah, this is one of the most overrated movies I watched and easily, honestly, blandest, retroactively the blandest movie of 2019. Like this, like Run the Race was bland. It didn't waste three and a half goddamn hours of my life bland. The Irishman is the blandest movie of 2019 for sure, retroactively. Uh, yeah, let's end things on a more positive note. In that Winnie the Pooh from 2011, I finally sat down and watched because uh, every so often the bit with the knots makes the rounds, uh, especially like if you've got people who love puns. It's a, it's a such it's probably the best bit of wordplay in the movie, which is very heavy on wordplay and puns. Problem is, it's it's a very half-assed movie in that they very clearly only had so much to go on. They they only had this movie's this movie barely clocks in at over an hour, and. Like it ends at fifty-eight minutes or so, and then the credits go for the entire for like eleven minutes more. There's like eleven minutes of credits to this movie, but yeah, it's it's not a very a good way to end the two D animation department, the hand drawn animation at Disney. It's a kind of sad note to end it on because even though it's like it's not terrible, it's also it feels like they're not the their heart's not in it. It feels like they're trying to recapture what makes Pooh great, but the live-action movie actually kind of did it better. Like the live-action movie handled the Hundred Acre Wood stuff and the and the why we love Winnie the Pooh so much better than this movie did. And 
Like, it's not bad, but it's just like, it just feels like they don't really have a good idea of for a, a movie. It felt like, it felt more obligatory. Like, oh, hey, here's, we love Winnie the Pooh. We need to make a new Winnie the Pooh thing. Okay. What if we just kind of retread the old, the same old ground? Like, this didn't feel like, this felt like it was a lesser version of the original Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh from the 70s, only not as fun. It felt like a more lifeless retreading of that. And that's not to say this is bad either. The animation is solid. The voice acting is good. Um, Craig Craig Ferguson is Owl in this. And it's like, oh my God, it's Craig Ferguson. And he's great as Owl. <laughs> Perfect casting almost. And it's just like, there's a lot of playing around with the fourth wall. It's clever. It's, it's, it's clever. And it's great. It has cool visual gags and whatnot. There's a whole hallucination sequence where Pooh is like, and Pooh is basically like a crack fiend trying to get his his smackerel of honey. And yeah, but ultimately that not bit is this really the best part of the whole movie. It's the only thing to really remember it for because everything else is just kind of retreading old ground. Um, yeah, it's, it's not a bad movie. It's just, I can kind of see why people weren't going to, it's, uh, John Lasseter brings up um, a good point about uh, 2D versus 3D animation uh, in that he, he people see CG movies making more money, and so Disney decided, oh, we shouldn't folk we shouldn't we should stop focusing on hand drawn animation because clearly the CG movies are what's making money and not. You know, the fact that Pixar's making better stories or that DreamWorks is telling more, making more compelling, more, you know, much funnier, irreverent stuff. And it's not that we had bad scripts and, you know, and made lackluster hand-drawn animated movies. It's clearly the fact, you know, it's clearly the fact that they're hand-drawn. People aren't into hand-drawn when... And when in Japan and in uh, various parts of Asia and other other parts of the world, hand drawn is fine. It's not the it's not the, the problem is that hand drawn animation is is boring. The problem is you did nothing with it. Like what did you do? What did Disney do with their last bits of hand drawn animation? Another print a a fair you know a a fairly middling princess movie uh, and uh, a retread of Winnie the Pooh. That was their last gasps of... And not even that Princess and the Frog is bad. It's just... It ultimately did not... Like, they... It was just before they re... They... Perf, they re... They took the Princess formula and made it work. It's, a, it's the last bit of the old Princess formula. And then Tangled was the beginning of their current Princess formula. And it, that's been working way better. And... Yeah, Princess and the Frog is great animation, but once again, the story isn't as fine-tuned as, say, Tangled or, like, the second, or the Moana specifically. Um, it, it, and once again, it's, I would love to see Disney do, like, hand-drawn CG, hand-drawn CG, hand-drawn CG. Work on them both at the same time. Split up the CG department, split up the animation department into a hand-drawn department and a CG department, and... Have that and like go bit go back and forth. Pick the scripts. Do one of them in two D. One and that's the thing. The the um 
behind the scenes of Moana show that they're still hand drawing certain stuff before they go into the before they start rendering it in CG. So they they could very easily just not do it in CG and just continue it in hand drawn. And I think if they split it, they could easily bring back hand drawn animation as insofar as they need to have the right scripts for it. Like if they take some of some of the people from Pixar to come up with script ideas for them and then they worked them out and then they could ease once again they could easily bring back hand-drawn animation at, to theaters if if they so chose they're Disney there's no reason they can't the problem is they need to have really good stories to tell like there's no reason to bring back hand-drawn animation if you're not going to tell a good story and yeah so I hope they do bring it back at some point. Now's the good time because it's everything so overloaded with CG that hand-drawn would look uh, like a breath of fresh air by comparison. So I just hope they have the good story to back it up. But yeah, uh, that's what I saw this past week. Uh, Winnie the Pooh came right the hell out of nowhere because I finally decided, oh, this not bit keeps popping up on Facebook. I wonder what it's all about. So I watched it, and yeah, it's a fairly middling Winnie the Pooh movie. Uh, yeah, so that is for the review portion. Uh, so let's go check in on that box office. And now the Popcorn Junkie checks in with this week's box office report. This one's going to be actually a slow week for the box office. And not surprisingly, because nothing really major came out. I think the big week in this uh, for the box office is going to be, oddly enough, Valentine's Day. Because that's when Birds of Prey is coming out. That's when I think Kingsman is coming out. That's when um, Sonic is coming out. So they've got a whole mess of stuff coming out on uh, Valentine's Day. But uh, for this weekend, not a whole lot changed. Um, Dropping out of the top 10, like a boss, is dropping like a rock. It is already out of the top 10 after three weeks. Frozen 2 finally dropped out of the top 10. But it's still at number 11. Uh, Parasite is doing better. It saw a jump from 14 to 12 as it gained some more um, theaters after its nominations. As did um, as did 1917 and Little Women. So the nominations are bringing them kind of into more theaters um, this week. But uh, at number 10, we got Knives Out. Bringing in $3.6 million, uh, bringing its uh, domestic growth up to $151 million. Uh, so far, it's made $283.3 million worldwide. So yeah, still a, a, a raging success for uh, Mr. Johnson, and deservedly so. Uh, dro- dropping down from 7 to 9 is Just Mercy, which brought in $4 million this weekend, bringing its domestic growth up to... $27 million, and its worldwide gross up to 30 uh, I think it's about breaking even. And sadly, I, I'm sad that this did not make the push for nominations. Uh, the Warner Brothers released this and Joker, and they and they knew the Joker would you know, appease the... like. That's the, uh, that's the other thing that um, Leon brought up in, Reneg- in his Renegade Cut video on it. Warner Brothers campaign, knew, knew the campaign for Joker... Because it would appeal to the voters, quote unquote. It's it's that whole likability thing that um, they talk about in regular campaign politics. You know, the likability thing. What will they like? Assuming what they will like instead of pushing for something that's genuinely good. Just Mercy is way better than Joker. 
but they knew that the Academy voters are suckers and they would go for Joker more than Just Mercy because Just Mercy is they apparently they they can't imagine a a good you know human story hum, you know human interest piece essentially uh, that doesn't appeal to their you know sensibilities anyway yeah I could go on about how the Academy is bullshit but we've got we're almost done here Little Women jumped from six uh, dropped from six to eight uh, bringing in four point seven million this weekend. Uh, bringing its domestic gross up to 93.7, 146.7 worldwide. On a $40 million budget, that's another wild success. Good for Greta Gerwig and good for the, the ladies there. It's uh, it's an excellent movie. Um, Star Wars dropped from 5 to 7, bringing in $5.1 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $501 million, and it's... So far, worldwide gross up to a billion dollars. So I, I remember people saying, "Like, um, is there a way to compare?" Here we go. Yeah, Star Wars. A thirty-day free trial of IMDb Pro. God damn it! All right. I thought there was a way to do it on Box Office Mojo, but I, apparently they're hiding it now behind a paywall. Damn it, Nicklin. Amazon nickeling diming us now. Um, anyway, uh, I heard people saying that this is a disappointment for Disney, and I'm like, oh no, the billion dollar movie is a disappointment. That that speaks more to like um, the, uh, the the industry. It's that's that sounds more like an industry problem than a than an actual problem because Jim Sterling talks about that kind of stuff with games all the time. Like, Oh no, the hundred million dollar game franchise is a disappointment because they wanted more. They, the, the greed, you know, the, the greedy, you know, <laughs> capitalist pigs want more. 30, 100, $1 billion. But I was promised two billion dollars. We'll get you the extra billion next movie, Disney. <laughs> Freaking bunch of Dudley Dursleys. Uh, anyway, uh, premiering at number six is The Turning, which brought in seven point three million dollars. Uh, has a domestic gross plus a little extra hundred eight hundred thousand from uh, foreign markets. Uh, broke even its opening weekend. So yeah. Cheap, low budget horror is the easy money maker because it can break even as long as enough people see it it'll break even its opening weekend and then be nothing but profit after a couple of weeks so yeah even though it's not a very good horror movie i'm assuming this is gonna be enough hell we might get it turning two for all we know we're getting a the boy two later this year i'm still pissed about it i finally saw the trailer it looks like it looks even worse than the last one Anyway, dropping from four to five is Jumanji: The Next Level, seven point nine million this weekend, and bringing bringing its domestic gross up to two hundred eighty three million worldwide, seven hundred thirty seven point four million dollars on a on a hundred twenty five million dollar budget. That's that's very good money. So yeah, expect Jumanji, and especially with what they uh, set up at the end of the movie, I'm very curious to see what the next Jumanji movie is going to look like. I'm very curious to see how what they do with it. Um, Anyway, premiering at number four is The Gentleman, uh, bringing in $11 million. And with its, because uh, it's, it's already saw release in like the UK, I think, last year. And so it's already made like $22 million worldwide. And 
that's $33 million on no listed budget. I'm guessing probably like $30, 40000000 million, depending on how much they had to pay, like McConaughey and Farrell and Grant for their roles. Um, so yeah, that's not a bad opening uh, for, for it at the state side. Uh, we'll see what they, uh, how it turns out later on, but yeah, it's good, you know, get Richie's able to do it on, you know, do it, do his old thing and make some money. So good, good enough for him. Uh, staying at number three is Doolittle, $12.5 million this weekend, $44 million domestic and double that internationally worldwide. Uh, after two weeks is $91 million. Nowhere near close to its budget, but it's also have, has the China, have the Chinese markets, opened it yet not yet the big the bit here's the thing to watch out for china's where all the money is now in terms of like box office i mean as much as people you know hate you know people like oh god china's where all the money is now but no like just in terms of who has the money to spend chinese audiences have the have the spare money and time to go to the movies more so than america does now that's just a matter of fact. And so, yeah, they have more sway over the box office. And I'm very interested to see how it does in the Chinese markets. Because this could ver- that could very well save the movie, actually. Did Cats ever open in China? I don't know if Cats ever opened in China. Hold on. Not that, th- not that I'm thinking about. Speaking of universal bombs. like <laughs> Oh, like, the nice thing for Doolittle is that Cats still exists. And that it still hasn't made, that still hasn't made back its money. Like, like Doolittle is still like halfway up to its budget. Cats after what um, five weeks hasn't even made back ninety five million dollars of its budget. Oh, that's so sad. Uh, no, that one hasn't opened in China yet either. It may not get an opening in China. Some, not all. I mean, that's the thing. The the, the Chinese the Chinese government controls what movies come in and out, so I don't know if those will actually make it in. We'll see. Um, 1917 stayed at number two uh, with $15.8 million this weekend. Uh, domestically has earned over $100 million and worldwide has made $200 million, So good for Sam Mendes. I mean, people are suckers for uh, war dramas. And even though I felt like this was re- just retreading old ground, it's still very well shot and uh, directed movie. So I'll give it that, you know, so I don't uh, begrudge it that. And then staying at number one for two weeks in a row is Bad Boys for Life. Uh, brought in $34 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $120 million, and its worldwide gross after two weeks, $215 million. Even after 10 years, the Bad Boys brought in made back their made back their money in two weeks' time. $90 million to make. It's already over $200 million worldwide. I would not be surprised if we got uh, another if we got if Sony tried to spin off the Bad Boys into more movies after this because yeah the they've, the people have spoken and they are here for the Bad Boys even if it is even if it is just the one last ride so I'd be shocked if they didn't capitalize on that especially with the setups that they are trying to make for the two movie within the movie itself so we'll see what happens after this because the money is there the audience has spoken and. And it's just a matter of what to do with it. Alrighty. Next, uh, we'll end things on what's opening this week. Uh, we've got two 
opening in wide release this week. Uh, I have no idea what all I can expect. There are a couple of like smaller stuff that I'm going to go down to uh, the really big uh, Cinemark like like two like like twenty screen theater to see because it's I have to go a bit out of town to see see certain things. But um, yeah, the two big releases are going to be Gretel and Hansel, which is a new take on the fairy tale. This time from Gretel's point of view, it looks like. Uh, Oz Perkins is directing. Osgood Perkins. He is best known for writing. Um, I am the pretty. Th- I am the pretty thing that lives in the house. He was also an actor in Legally Blonde and Secretary. Um, all uh, the girl in the photographs, Black Coat's daughter, Cold Comes the Night, Head Full of Ghosts. Never heard of any of these. Uh, what about director? Um, I am the pretty thing that lives in the house, and the Black Coat's daughter. Uh, so yeah, apparently this guy. Apparently this guy is an actor turned uh, writer director. So we'll see if it, if he's any good. Uh, written by Rob Hayes who is known for something called Chewing Gum, New Gods, no relation to the DC property, I'm guessing. Uh, TV series, Chewing Gum, uh, the Stephen K. Amos show. Once again, a uh, bunch of short stuff. This is going to be uh, his first major film debut. So we'll see. We'll see what comes of it. Uh, no, 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 no actors I recognize. Uh, Sophia Lillis is going to be playing Gretel. Uh, she is best known for... Oh! Beverly Marsh! Oh my god, and she was also Nancy Drew in that, that direct-to-video movie. Oh, bunny. Uh, so, okay, so she's Gretel. Um, Alice Krieg? 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 Kriegs? Kriegs. I want to say Krieg. K-R-I-G-E. Um, she's going to be the witch, and she was best known as the Boar Queen... From First Contact. Uh, who's going to be playing Hansel? Samuel Leakey. He is going to be... This is going to be his first uh, uh, debut. Jessica DeGal as the young version of The Witch. Apparently she was on uh, Dracula, that Dracula TV series. And she was also in The Crown. So yeah. Uh, looks like... Um, it's gonna be um, it's gonna be interesting to watch. I mean, it, hey, at least there's somebody I recognize in it, even if I didn't recognize her name. So we'll see if it's any good. It's gonna be a real testing ground for these people. And then the rhythm section is coming out with Blake Lively. Uh, that's gonna be a, you know sort of um, oh god, what was the one with uh, what's her name? Shoot, um, now I can't remember her name. Um, let me see if it's more like this. It's listed. What's it called? It's a. Uh, it was like in 2007, and there was, I can't remember her name, but she was. She was um. 2007 revenge. Movie. The Brave One. That's what it was. Uh, with... 
Come on, give me a tie. Jodie Foster. That's who it was. Um, so yeah, kind of giving me an idea of the Brit. Kind of giving me like that kind of vibe. But we've got Blake Lively, Jude Law, Sterling K. Brown, and it looks like this woman is going um, is is becoming like an, an assassin to get revenge on the um, terror on these terrorists who killed her family. Um, directed by Reed Morano. Uh, he, she is best known for, um, some, some episodes of The Handmaid's Tale. She's a cinematographer. Uh, rhythm section is going to be, I think we're alone now. Is her, was her first, no, a uh, second movie. Cause she also did Met, something called Meadowland. What's I think we're alone now? Apocalypse proves a blessing in disguise for one lucky recluse until a second survivor arrives with the threat of companion. Aw, Peter Dinklage and Elle Fanning. Huh. I'll have to check that out. That sounds interesting. Uh, so yeah, she's directing. Uh, she also apparently did... Oh, she shot a... She was the cinematographer on Beyonce's Lemonade video. Neat. Uh, and then we've got Mark Burnell as the writer. Burnell is gonna... This is gonna be his first... Uh, this is going to be his debut as well. So this is going to be a real testing ground this weekend. Uh, we've got n- brand new writer-director and um, a fledgling director with a brand new writer. Um, so we'll see how they do. And that should do it for this week's episode, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep updated on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by whitelisting us on your ad blocker and favoriting us on your web browser. You can also check out all of our other fine programming. Uh, I lo- Check out all of Donna's stuff at the Snarkast, uh, Once More With Feeling, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, uh, The Family Business, all of that good stuff. Uh, we've got a new one where there's going to be a couple new ones coming out. Um, well, at least a new uh, relaunched version of um, a new D&D actual play show that I've been running. Uh, the, that should be premiering hopefully within a couple of days. I want to say it should be out by Wednesday. Don't hold, uh, but given my track record, <laughs> don't hold me on it. Uh, but ideally it should be out on a Wednesday. So keep an eye out for Dungeons and Dragon types. Uh, it's a Pokemon D&D actual play show. <laughs> It's gonna be. It's gonna be. It's a lot of fun, dudes. Y- y'all gotta check this one out when it's ready. Um, and then, if you're yourself our podcaster and you would like to join our fledgling little network network and help it out, help it grow, uh, you can send us uh, inquiries at gumbicannetworks at gmail.com and we'll see if you're a good fit. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast on the go, you can find us on your on your various uh, podcast providers: Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, uh, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. If we're not on your podcast provider, uh, let us know so we can add add ourselves to it. And then leave a five-star rating review. Let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. You can also share us on social media. Our social media home is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. Um, uh, Twitter at cornjunkiepod. Uh, Instagram at popcornjunkiepodcast. Uh, Letterbox is cornjunkiepod. Stardust is, uh, is popcornjunkie. And uh, I'm almost caught up at Stardust, but yeah, if you want to keep uh, a good tab on my reviews, uh, I post the most frequently on Letterboxd. I think I'm gonna try and start sharing those on social media, so I'm constant, so that I have more social media traffic. I'm very bad at doing. I'm very bad at that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's um, 
Yeah, and then uh, if there's anything you want to say to the podcast, any kind of feedback you want to give, your thoughts on the movies I reviewed, uh, send all that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. If you want me to read it out on the episode, leave it in the subject line or the message. Uh, Otherwise, I'll simply paraphrase. Uh, I would love to hear feedback from you all. Uh, Don't forget that there's also a Patreon. If you want to help the show out that way, patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. 20 episodes uh, for any patron, there's no tiers. It's pay. It's paid little as a dollar a month, and you can help out. And you can help produce content for the show. Um, yeah, <laughs> that does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and I just realized that the first month of 2020 is already almost over. Christ, where does the time go? The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. You don't get to... Can I help you?